All right, if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 16, and we'll be looking at uh, three verses here this morning. As we turn uh, the page, I guess we could turn, it's a transition passage, it's a turning point in, in the Gospel of Matthew. I think it's a turning point not only in the Gospel of Matthew, but in Mark and Luke as well. And we're going to go in a different direction that we, than we've been going in Matthew. Uh, this is a defining moment in the time of the disciples' lives. It's a defining moment in Jesus' ministry, and it'll be a defining moment again in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. From this moment on, and you can even draw a line there, verse, from verse 20 to verse 21, you see that he says, from that time from that time forth, so there's a line there. From this point on, Jesus sets his eyes towards the cross and will begin to teach his disciples about what he's going to do. So this is a turning point. This is a transition. And what he's going to show his disciples here today and throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, he's going to be showing to them God's plan to save mankind. So that's what I titled the sermon today. I want to show you. He kind of gives them a, a synopsis, a little picture of, here's my plan going forward. Here's where we're going to go. Here's what we're going to do. You guys need to buckle up because it's going to be a rough ride. And that's what he says here at the start. So let's stand together, and I want to show you, again, the title of the sermon. And I love this title. I think it's a, it's a, it's a good title for this passage, God's Plan to Save Mankind. So let's read these verses, just three verses, and we're going to do everything we can to get everything that we can out of these verses. So starting in verse 21, Jesus is going to give God's plan to save mankind. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples, here's what he's going to show them, how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again on the third day. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. So let's, we're going to look at these three verses, and I hope we can get that today. That God has given us a plan. He, he ordered a plan before the foundation of the world in order to save us. And here we get just a, a small picture of what God is going to do and has done to save us from our sin. So let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your plan. I want to say that at the outset. God, uh, we, we're going to talk about it later in the sermon, but there's no one else that could put this plan together. There's no one else. I mean, we could all get here together and try to our best to put a plan together to save man, and none of us could come up with what you came up with, the plan of salvation. So God, we thank you for it, and that it is simple. As I'm studying this passage this week, I'm seeing just how simple this plan is, but how wonderful it is, and how perfect it is. So God, help us all here today. I want everybody in here to know your plan to save man. I want the kids to know your plan to save man. I want every adult, everybody online to know your plan to save man. So God, help us to get this. Help it not just to go into our heads, but into our hearts. That we would know this is the plan, the only plan of salvation. So help us here today. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. I want to start out by telling you what Paul Washer, Paul Washer, one of my favorite preachers, uh, what Paul Washer called the most terrifying truth in the world. A truth that should keep you up at night. I know people uh, stay up at night and they're worried about a lot of things. They're worried about their bills. They're worried about the, the coronavirus. They're worried about the panic that's going on in America right now. We're worried about the politics. We're worried about all these commercials that we see of all these politicians that are running for some office in some place at some time. So we've got all these things that are running through our mind. But Paul Washer says this is, should be what keeps us up at night. This, this most terrifying truth in the world. The most terrifying truth in the Bible. This should uh, cause us to, to shake trying to figure out how we can figure this out and you say what is that most terrifying truth it is this god is a good god and i know you're sitting there saying that's not terrifying hold on just a second don't get ahead of me god is a good god which means that he is a a just god and he is a fair god i'm going to say it this way our god will always do the right thing that's the truth about our God. I think it's Genesis 18 says, Will not the judge of the world do what's right? Our God is a just God who will always do what is right. You say, that's not terrifying. That's good. Wait a second. Because the second truth of this is, God is a good and just and fair God who will always do what's right. And we are a wicked and evil bad people. And God must do what's right with us. 
We are wicked. The Bible says there's none good, no, not one. There's none that, that is righteous. There's none that is holy. There's none that is that are sinless. So this good God, what is He going to do? A, a good judge, what's He going to do with the bad people? That's the terrifying truth. He can't just let us go because He wouldn't be a good God then. He can't just say, oh, their sin's not too bad. Let's just let them go. Let, let them off the hook. It's like if my kids get mean and they, and they, and I say, oh, you know, okay, I'm not going to punish you. I'm too good of a dad. And I just keep on letting them go and letting them go. And there's no punishment and there's no whipping. My kids are going to grow up and they're going to be awful people. And you're going to say, that wasn't a good dad. That was a, a very bad dad. We're like a judge that you bring a murderer before him and set him in front of him. And the judge says, ah, it wasn't that bad. Let him go. That's not a good judge. He's not doing what's right. He's not doing what's fair. He's letting someone who is guilty go. So our God, who is a righteous and just and good and fair God, cannot just let us go. He must punish us for our sin. That's who God is. That's terrifying. That our God is good. Our God will. If He is good, He will punish us. If He is fair, He will punish us. That is terrifying. So there's the question before us today. I'll say this. There's the predicament. There's the problem. How can a good God forgive a bad people? There's your problem. There's the, We need some kind of solution to this. How do we solve that? A good God and a bad people. And I said that we could get in small groups today. I hated that in college. They said, oh, let's get in small groups today. And you're sitting there trying to figure out who you're going to get with. You're trying to get with the smartest kid in the class so you don't have to do a whole lot of work. And, and <laughs> they put you in groups. And we could do that today. We could get in groups and we could, we could, we could do it for a year. We could do it for a hundred years. We could do it for a thousand years. And we would never come up with, in our, uh, our small little minds, a plan to save man. We couldn't do it. Get this. Seminaries couldn't do it. Uh, denominations couldn't do it. Religions have been trying to figure out this problem throughout history. How can a, a good God forgive a bad man? They've been trying to solve that problem. And religion can't solve the problem. Churches can't solve the problem. Only God can solve the problem. And God, in His infinite genius, and He is an infinite genius, before the foundation of the world, had a plan. How a good God could forgive a bad man. And God is giving us His solution to our dilemma. And we get to see it in the Gospels. Understand me, that's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You read those four Gospels and it's showing you God's plan to save man. That's why when you have an unbeliever come to you and they say, I, I, I need to know where do I go? What do I read? Send them to a Gospel. Send them to the, to the Gospel of John. These things are written that you might believe. That you might know that Jesus is the answer. He is the solution to our problem. He is the way that God will save man. They need to see Jesus. And that's what we see here. We've seen the man that God sends to save mankind. We've seen that for 16 chapters. He has shown us Jesus. For God so loved the world that He sent His only begotten Son. He sent the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's shown us the man. Here's who I'm sending. And the disciples finally got it. They understood it. We saw that in Matthew 16 so far. They figured it out. They, they, their eyes were open to the glorious reality of who Jesus is. And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We know who the man is. That was 15 chapters worth. 15 chapters showing us who Jesus is. The man God sent to save us. And now, he says here in verse 21. I want you to see that. God has a plan to save us. And part of His plan was sending a man. His only begotten Son. The second person of the Trinity. He sent Jesus. And we've seen that very clearly through 15 chapters. That the man God sent is Jesus. He is the Christ. The Son of the living God. And here, look, at, look with me. Verse 21. He says, now from this time forward. Now that you've got this, let's move on to phase 2. Let's move on to the second part of the plan. You ready for this? Here we go. From that time forth, he's going to start talking about something new. They know who the man is. 
Now they need to know what the plan is. They know who the man is, Jesus. Now what's the plan? And he begins to show them the plan. Do you see that there? I'm going to read it to you. He begins to show his disciples. He, he couldn't come to his disciples two years ago and say, here's Jesus, he, he's, he's the man, now let me tell you the plan and, and give it all to them. It's just too much at one time. They had to get the man first, and it took them about a year and a half. Now they need the plan. Because they're coming up on what's going to happen next. So he says, from this time forward, and, and look what he says. I, I want you to see this. Because it becomes a theme over the next 12 chapters. Not who the man is, but what the plan is. Look what he says. He must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, be killed, and, and risen again. So there's, there's the plan. I'll get into that in, in a second. But look with me. It's, I'm, I'm not making this up. Look with, with me in chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. He says it again. Should be right there at, at, at your passage. And when they, chapter 17, verse 22, and while they abode in Galilee, Jesus said unto them, the Son of Man shall be betrayed into the hands of men, and they'll kill Him, and on the third day He'll be risen again. And they were exceeding sorry. He says it again. Look with me in chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. I love hearing those Bible pages turn. And Jesus, going up to Jerusalem, took the twelve disciples apart in the way and said unto them, Behold, we're going to Jerusalem. And the Son of Man shall be betrayed unto the chief priests and scribes, and they'll condemn Him to death, and shall deliver Him to the Gentiles to mock and to scourge and to crucify Him. And on the third day, He's going to be risen again. I can go one more for you if you, if you guys want to turn some more pages. I know you like to be involved. This is an interaction here. Chapter 26, verses 1 and 2. I could give you more. And it came to pass when Jesus had finished all these things, verse 1, He said unto His disciples, You know that after two days is the feast of the Passover, and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed to be crucified. I could take even further, but I don't have time for that. So from this point on, Jesus is going to show them. He's given veiled hints prior to this. He's given veiled hints as, in, uh, as Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And that, that's kind of, you know, we don't really see that really clear. We don't know what that reference means. He said, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. That's kind of a, he's just given an illustration there. They're not clearly seeing what that is. But here now, starting here, he's going to speak more clearly than he ever has before about what he came to do. This is explicit, this is forceful, this is plain. We're going to see here in these verses the plan unfold. Not just who He is, but what He came to do. So He's showing them God's plan to save man. So I want to give you the details of it. Again, I want to take these three verses and squeeze everything that I can out of it so that we can understand, we all need to understand this. God's plan to save man. So let's look at it, starting in verse 21. I'm going to give you three points, three verses. This should be very, very simple and easy for us. Starting with the first point, the first heading I want you guys to take down is the plan revealed. As Jesus here in verse 21 reveals His four-step plan. It is a four-step plan that He has. And He just, I mean, you guys can see it there. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto His disciples how that he must, let's start with phase one, right? We hear about phases all the time right now. So phase one, what's phase one of the plan? Go to Jerusalem. You see that? I underlined each phase of this plan. First one is go to Jerusalem. He is now, as, he, as he's saying this, we've seen that in, in the earlier verses in verse 13, he's now walking in Caesarea Philippi. He's several miles away from Jerusalem. And he said, guys, I know there's a, there's a thousand different roads we could go. I could go this way or I could go that way. But I've set my eyes on, my mind is focused on, we're all going, every single one of us is heading towards Jerusalem. He has his eyes set on that city. And I know you guys have heard of Jerusalem, but I, I want to give you just an idea. This city's called God's city. It was the dwelling place of God. As God met with uh, Abraham in, in Jerusalem, he is going to offer uh, Isaac uh, in Jerusalem. It was a city of sacrifices. And as he goes, it's almost like he's, he's looking at a map. He says, here's the plan, guys. We're going right here. And I, look, I googled pictures of Jerusalem, and, and it's up on a mountain. 2,500 feet or so above sea level, and as you walk to it, you've got to walk up to it. And the pictures that you see of Jerusalem, is, it's like a shining light in the sun. And Jesus says, that's where we're going. And they don't want to go there. 
That's where they've been, and that's where they've been hated, and that's where they've been hunted, and that's where they've been, been run out of. He's been in Galilee doing ministry. And he says, guys, we're leaving Galilee where we've been loved and done miracles, and we're heading towards a place where we're going to be hated. And that's what he says next. We're not just going to Jerusalem. When I get there, we're going to, I'm going to suffer many things. You see that? Guys, I'm not going to sit on a throne. I'm going to suffer. And I'm not going to suffer at the hands of pagan and godless people. I'm going to suffer at the hands of the top dog religious elite of the day. These are the guys. And it says there, it gives you three groups of people. The elders, the priests, and the scribes. These are the people that were the house and the senate and the, the presidency. I mean, they were the top dogs of the time. And not of the politicians, but of the, the religious people. And these are the people that the disciples grew up looking up to. That they wanted to be like. That they'd see them walking down the street and they'd say, Oh, I want to grow up and be one of them. I want to be just like they are. They know the Bible. They know the Old Testament. They know the law. We want to be like them. And Jesus says here, I'm going to suffer at their hands. They're not going to accept me. They're not going to embrace me. They're going to punish me. This is sobering news to them. I want you to hear this like you're the disciples. We know this plan. That's the hard part about preaching this passage is we know it. They had never heard this before. And as he says, we're going to Jerusalem, they're like, yeah, that's not a good idea. We're going to suffer. That's a bad idea. Don't go. And he says they're going to do many, suffer in many ways. What are they going to do to him? He doesn't give them the details, but we know they're going to hate him. They're going to hunt him. They're going to arrest him. They're going to try him. They're going to mock him. They're going to flog him. They're going to scourge him. They're going to beat him. They're going to, he's going to be the butt of their jokes. They're going to put him through hell when he gets there. And that's not the worst of it. You see the next phase? Phase one, go to Jerusalem. Phase two, suffer. <laughs> You're sitting there thinking, bad plan. I mean, this isn't good at all. Phase three, and be killed. You see that? Phase three. This is the plan. This is Jesus' plan. This is, and we're going to talk about it in just a second. This is God's plan from the foundation of the world. Go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. Be murdered. That's what the word means, killed, be murdered. They will unjustly take his life. He's going to go to Jerusalem and die. He's walking into Jerusalem as a dead man walking. As a lamb being led to the slaughter. They're going to take Jesus and after they hate on him and, and make fun of him and hunt him and arrest him and try him and mock him and flog, flog him and, and scourge him and beat him and put him through hell, they're going to take him to the garbage dump of Golgotha and they're going to slaughter him like a lamb. They're going to destroy him. And I think the disciples quit listening right there. But he gives them phase four. Because Jesus then says, but that won't be the end of me. This is my favorite part. <laughs> if you stop right there and be killed, Christianity's over. Christianity's hopeless. Christianity's nothing. But Jesus goes on to say, and in every one of those passages I read you, He didn't just say, go to Jerusalem, suffer many things, and die. Jesus isn't sitting there talking like somebody who's in big trouble. He's talking like somebody who's going to be triumphant over everything that happens in this plan. I'm not just going to go to Jerusalem. I'm not just going to suffer many things. I'm not just going to die. But that's not the end of me. I will rise again. And it doesn't just say in the last day, on some day, in some time. He gives details and says, on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He says it. He lays it out there. Detailed. The gates of hell, the, the, the grave, will not prevail over me. We come out winners, guys. I think they've already shut their ears off to it though and they're not listening to what he's saying after suffer and die. They're sitting there thinking, oh no, that's where we're going? But he's like, wait, 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 wait guys, I'm going to rise again. It's going to be okay. These are words of triumph and, and victory and hope. The sun will go down and it'll get dark, but it'll rise again. That's what he's saying there. The resurrection is the most important part. The resurrection is the final part. It's the seal that says his death is accepted in heaven. But I want you to see the most important word in the passage. I skipped a word. You guys who really pay attention, you know that I did. Because we see the plan, four steps. Go to Jerusalem, suffer. This is, a, this, is, this is how the rest of Matthew pans out. 
I mean, if you guys want to, we, we could quit Matthew right here. This is what happens. What does Jesus do? <laughs> Goes to Jerusalem, suffers many things, dies, rises again, and then goes to heaven, where he's ascended and seated right now. That's the plan. But I love one word in here that sets it off, that makes it a very forceful, makes what he says here a thundering phrase. He says, well, look at this, that he, and I would underline it, must. This is a key word. This isn't a plan that might happen. This isn't a plan that maybe could happen. I make plans at home all the time. We'll make plans. What's, say we'll take on Friday. What's your plans for tonight? And I'll send back step one. I do that. I mean, that's just how I am. Step two, step three, step four. I mean, I, I could keep going all the way down to like step 12. And I'm saying, no, this is what I want to do. And, and, it's, and, and, and my plans are like, I'm going to leave the church. I'm going to come home. And, I'm, and I have everything planned out. And then you get home and the, and the kids are going nuts. And you're just like, I ain't doing none of these things. I'm just going to lay here is what I'm going to do. That's the, the, the new plan. It didn't work out. It didn't pan out. Because a lot of our plans don't work out. But this passage here says, this plan must work out. And then you say, what's the word must? It's a divine imperative. Jesus says it with a force, with a thunder, with a boom. This word means so much. It must happen. You say, what does must mean? And I, that's why I said, I want to squeeze everything I can out of must. What does must mean? It means it's God's plan. Jesus said, must. I have to do this. I came to do my Father's will, and this is my Father's plan. This came. These four steps, these four phases, came from the throne room of God Almighty. These four steps came from the foundation of the world. These were not Jesus sitting down thinking, let's figure this out. This is Jesus saying, this is what I came to do. This is set, I like that, let's say it that way. This is set in stone. This is unstoppable. This is not in the hands of the scribes. This is not in the hands of the Pharisees. This is not in the hands of, of any of the people who's going to be involved in, in, in crucifying Jesus. This is entirely in God's hands. No one can change it. No one can alter it. No one can stop it. This is what I must do. This is plan A. There's no oops. There's no accidents. There's no contingency plans. There's no, uh-oh, they did this, I need to do this. Everything he does, from going to Jerusalem, suffering many things, being killed, and being raised again, everything happens according to God's divine plan. Nothing is ever out of control. This is his destiny. He's destined, predestined to go to the cross. It's under the control of God. He announces it in advance. During the French Revolution, there was a leader in France that got all of his leaders together and said, let's create a new religion. And they spent months trying to put a new religion together. After five or six months, they came back together and said, it's not working. We can't make a new religion. And the leader said, why can't we? What's wrong? The guy stood up real humbly. He said, I, I think I know. I said, what is it? He said, here's what we do. You ready? He said, you find a guy that will stand up and tell everybody, I'm going to go and die. And on the third day, I'm going to be risen again. And then, after, after that happens, he actually does it. And if you do that, if you can find somebody to do that, you'll find you a new religion. But until you can find that, you'll never have a religion worth anything at all. Somebody who can tell you, this is what I'm going to do, and then go and do it? Now that's a big deal. I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer. I must die. And I must be risen again. It's a must thing. I'll give you one more thing. The must was not just God's plan. It was a perfect plan. There are, get this, no other ways. 
If there was another way, God would have never sent His Son to do what He did. This is the only way. He must do this to save us. He must die to provide our salvation. He must die in our place. He must be punished for our sin. He must be made sin for us. He must be made a curse for us. If not, everybody in the world goes to hell. He must do this plan. There's a must behind this. Think about it. Think about it. If this is what it takes for me to be forgiven, and it's the only way, if this is what God must do, if this is what it cost Him to make me whole, then how great must my sin be? We talk about how sinful we are all the time. We do. Everybody in here, I guarantee you if I went around the room and said, are you a sinner? Even to the kids sitting over here, you know what they'd say? If I want to ask my kids, my kids, not your kids. Maybe, maybe you don't want me to ask your kids that. Maybe your kids are angels. Mine aren't. If I went and asked my kids right now, and I think all of them are up here, are you a sinner? <laughs> they look at me and say, yeah, Dad, you know you, you live with me. They know it. If I ask you guys, are you sinners? Every single one of you would say, yeah, we're sinners. We believe that. We know that. But I think deep down we, we think we're still pretty good. I open the door for elderly people. I give my seat up to people. I smile at people. I walk through the food city and I wave at people and I talk to them. I'm not as bad as everybody else is. That's what we think. My kids may even think that. I'm not as bad as everybody else. Well, I know some kids at church and they're worse than I am. They probably think that. I think that sometimes. You watch the news. I'm not as bad as they are. Good night. I know I'm a sinner, but... You see that? I'm not that bad. My good outweighs my bad. (laughs) We don't see just how bad of sinners we really are. How deep it is. How bad it is. The old Puritan wrote, The sinfulness of sin. That it took a bloody, messy cross to forgive me. If that's what it took, if it must take that to forgive me of my sins then my sins must be awful. Your sins must be awful. Our sins must be awful. God didn't come and die for good people. He came and died for the worst of the worst. And right here I am and right there you are. We're all deeply, deeply sinful. Down, I'll say this, as as the, as. In my mind is depraved. My heart is depraved. My feet are depraved. I'm as bad as I can get. I've heard heard people say, even preachers that say, oh, we're not that bad. There's people out there that are worse than we are. When we say that, we show just how bad we really are. This is what it took to save us. This is what it costs God to make us whole. This is the only way, and any other way is a way to hell. Any other plan other than these four steps is a plan that will send you to hell. So as we move from that, I want you to, again, hear it as the disciples did. This was brand new to them. So what does Peter say? I showed you the plan revealed. Now I want to show you the plan protested. Look what Peter says in verse 22. Then Peter took him. (laughs) The word took there means Peter grabbed a hold of Jesus and pulled him to the side, put his arm around him and took him off and said, "Let let let me talk to you for a second, Jesus. Let's have a discussion here. I don't like what you just said. That plan isn't a good plan. Let's think up something better. Like Peter had a better plan than God had. So he pulled, he took him. He said, whoa, 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 whoa. grabbed him by the shoulder. Said, hey, let's go over here. Let's go over to the side. I don't want to embarrass you in front of the other 11 disciples. So let's go over here to the side. Peter is being very bold there. He just called Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now he grabs a hold of him and is going to take him off and correct him. Oh my, how bold that is. He takes Jesus to the side. He wouldn't do that. And I want to show you this. 
This shows how human Jesus is. Jesus is not showing Himself as He was shown in Isaiah chapter 6 in all of His glory. Whereas He'll be seen in the transfiguration in just a few weeks. Jesus is fully human. To the point where Peter could say, oh, come on Jesus, let's go over here. And Jesus let him do it. So he takes Jesus to the side, and it says, and he rebukes him. That's a very strong word. Same word that Jesus would rebuke the demons and cast them out. You with me on that? He rebukes the demons and says, out of, out of them. Very strong word. And now Peter, a man, looks to Jesus, God, and rebukes him. Corrects him. He's not asking questions. It's okay to ask questions. It's not okay to rebuke. He put Jesus in his place. He looks at him and says, I disagree with you. I don't like what you just said. Let me straighten you out, Jesus. Let, I'm no better than you do. Allow me to explain it better. Let's come up with a, a better plan. And he says here, well, look what he says. His actual words are here. Peter took him, began to rebuke him, saying, be it far from thee, or heaven forbid. God forbid that that happened to you. Heaven wouldn't want that happening to you. Like Peter knows better than Jesus does what heaven wants. This won't happen. We won't let this happen to you. Be it far from thee, Lord. This isn't going to happen to you. He's saying, you're not going to suffer. You're not going to die. Don't say such things. You're, you're upsetting the rest of the guys. Don't say that. Be positive. How much do you hear that in churches? Be more positive and not so negative. Talk about the good things, not the bad things. We don't want to hear about death. We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about suffering. We want to hear the flowery things like, like blessed art thou, Peter. We want to hear the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. We don't want to hear nothing about death. We live in a culture who loves the part of Jesus that has the government on his shoulders. We hate the part of Jesus that has a cross on his back. We love the Jesus who fights for justice. We hate the Jesus who dies for sin. Peter comes up to him and says, don't do that. Don't talk about those things. And I can give you a reason why he does. Because we used to say, well, that, that, that Peter, he shouldn't have done that, man. I, I don't give Peter a hard time here because he loved Jesus. And he didn't want Jesus to go and suffer and die. Imagine if your loved one come up to you and said, the doctor just told me that I'm going to be in the hospital, I'm going to suffer for six months, and then I'm going to die. You'd say, don't say that. Be full of hope. God can come through. That's what Peter's doing here. He, he's sincere. He, he It's understandable. He doesn't want Jesus to die. But ultimately, Peter didn't like the plan. He's looking at Jesus saying, let's go a different direction. Let's do something different. We can figure this out. I don't like the plan. Let's not have a plan where somebody suffers and dies. Let's not have a plan where we go through hard times. We need a different plan. And we can't give Jesus a hard time or Peter a hard time because every single one of us have done this before. That God has a plan, God has a will, God has a way. And when something happens to us, whether it be we get sick, God, that's not a good plan. We lose our job, God, that's not a good plan. We lose a loved one. God, that's not a good plan. I've done it recently when, when we have a pandemic that comes in and, 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 and you know, it's almost like the church was just going so well and, and people were coming in. The last Sunday we were really all together. We had a baptism and we had all these things planned for this year. It was going to be so wonderful. And all of a sudden in the middle of it, there's a pandemic and we're shut down for eight weeks and even now we can't come together. We're wearing masks and I pray to God, that's not a good plan. He said, do you say that? I don't know that I say those words, but I say, this is what I say, be it far from us. No, that's not going to happen. 
We all do this. We all fight back against God's plan for us. Peter's fighting back. Peter's saying, no, Lord, not this. No, Lord, not again. No, Lord, no. This can't be the plan. This can't be right. I know better than you do. We can't suffer. We say that. Peter would almost make a pretty good Pentecostal. We can't suffer. There's no suffering in this. It's all victory in this. There's no death in this. No way! But Peter missed the main point. He only saw, and he'll say that here in the, in the next verse. Jesus will say that. He only saw the right now. He wanted Jesus to be a political ruler, a military power, to destroy his enemy and bless him, and they could sit on his right hand and on his left hand, and they could rule and reign with him from Jerusalem forever and ever. And he would, he would restore Israel to the most powerful nation in the world, and everybody would look up to them there on that bright and shining hill. And that's what he wanted. That's what he wanted right now. I want blessing right now. He was only looking right now. And he wasn't looking deeper the way God wanted him to look. He was looking through his own fleshly human eyes and not through divine eyes that was looking not right now, but ten steps down the road. Peter didn't see that the end result of the pain and the suffering and the death would result in Peter being saved and forgiven. Peter was basically looking at him and saying, Jesus, don't die for my sins. Don't save me. And Peter didn't even see it. Sometimes in our lives when God brings things to us right in the middle of our lives, and we only see about that far in front of us. That's about how far we see, ain't it? That's why we take one thing, we take it one step at a time. One day at a time, sweet Jesus. That's, that's, that's all I ask of thee. And it's not even one day at a time. Sometimes when I get up, I say, God, help me just to get one foot in front of the other today. One minute at a time. One second at a time. That's where we see. But we have to look beyond all of now and today and see what Jesus is doing and how good things are going to come from this. All things work together for the good. For those who love God and are called according to His purposes. I told that to Christian yesterday. Oh, I jumped all over him yesterday. Where's he at? He's sitting, he's sitting over here probably being mean. And I jumped all over him yesterday. And he came up to me and I looked at him and I said, I will never do anything to hurt you. Ever. Everything I do. Everything I do. Is for your good. Me jumping on you today was for your good. And he looked at me and said, I know, Dad. But when you was jumping on me, it didn't feel good. <laughs> Ain't that where we all are? I know he's going to work this out for good. But in the middle of it, I don't see it. I know he's going to work the pandemic out for good. I know He is. But right now in the middle of it, when it's struggling and when we wear masks and we social distance and we can't hug and we can't be around each other, I start to think, I can't see it. The church is struggling. You can't get people together anymore. What's going to come of this? And God's saying, you don't see the end. You don't see what I'm doing. What is God doing in the world right now? He's building His church and even a pandemic can't stop it. He's working even this out for good. I don't see it. You may not see it, but oh, we trust that God has a greater plan even in this. Peter didn't see it. He didn't see that after the cross was a resurrection. After the resurrection was sins forgiven, salvation, even heaven in the future. Peter's eyes were only here. And Jesus was saying, come on, Peter. You know I'm not going to do anything to hurt you. So Jesus now, because Peter misses the point, Jesus had to correct him. Get this. If Peter got an A on the first test on who Jesus is, he got an F on what Jesus came to do. 
Because now Jesus looks at him and he says, and I'm going to give you the last point. We've seen the plan revealed. We've seen the plan protested. I want to show you the plan defended. Because Jesus, boy, Jesus gives it to him here. He just got done saying, and if you you haven't been with us, I think this is remarkable. Peter answered and said, I believe thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 16. Verse 17, Jesus said, Blessed art you, Simon Barjona. How blessed. Smile on his face. Wonderful. In verse 23, Jesus turned and said unto Peter, Get behind me, Satan. The only person Jesus ever called Satan in the Gospels was Peter. He says, get, be- get behind me. I mean, that, for me, when I read that, I think, ouch, that's a, that's a tough one. And he's saying here, and then what this is, and I, I, I read it in the Greek trying to get what he's actually saying and even how, his, how, how, he, how he would say it. And, and what it comes out as is it would say, get Satan. Like a stray dog coming up to your house and, and trying to, to, to be in your yard and do things, you know, what dogs do in your yard. Get out of here. Get on, get. You know, that's how, that's how we say it. Get on out here. <laughs> I shouldn't have said that. I'm sure he didn't say it that way, but that's how we would have said it. Get on out of here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, just go. Scat, get. That's what he's saying. Leave. Get out of here, Peter. And he's saying that to Peter. Get out of here. I mean, they've already, they've already walked over to the side, and Peter says it, and Jesus says, it and says, Get away from me. Get out of here with that stuff. He's being hard on him here. It's the exact same thing what Peter's doing here. And Peter, what Peter said is the exact same thing that, P, that the Satan did in the wilderness. And Jesus in Matthew 4, you know what he said to Satan when he's tempting him there? He looked at him and said, you don't out of here. He did. I mean, I, I can, I, you want to turn to Matthew 4 and see it? I, I don't know if you guys believe me. I think you do. I don't know. The temptation of Jesus. Look what he says in verse 10, chapter 4. It's almost, it almost mirrors it. Then, and this is after three temptations. Then saith Jesus unto him, Get on out of here. <laughs> Get thee hence, Satan. You see that? And over here, I mean, it, it's almost the exact wording. Get thee behind me. And so it goes from get thee hence to get thee behind me. So he's saying the exact same things. What he said to Peter is what he said to Satan. So what Peter is doing is what Satan was doing. So what was Peter doing that Satan did in Matthew chapter 4? Satan tempted Jesus. So Satan, get this, knows the plan. And Satan was trying to stop the plan. And now Satan is using Peter to try to stop the plan. Satan tried to stop it in Matthew chapter 4, and now Satan, he's using Peter in Matthew chapter 16 to try to stop it. Satan will do anything he can to try to stop Jesus from going to the cross. He knows what happens at the cross. He knows that his head will be crushed at the cross. And he will do everything in his limited power to try to stop Jesus from going to the cross. And I want you to notice one other thing here in this, this, this start of this. Peter is shooting Satan's arrows here. Satan uses Peter. What, what a difference just a few verses can, can make. From verse 16, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. And then Simon and Peter is saying, uh, saying the, the, the words of God. That, that, that heaven revealed this to you. And Peter's sitting there thinking, wow, God showed me. I spoke it. I'm doing great right now. And just seven verses later, Peter is using the words of Satan. So quickly, he goes from the heights of heaven to the depths of hell. He goes from blessed to Satan. It's a very thin line that even, get this, it's possible for people who love Jesus to make hellish suggestions. Do you know that's true if you've ever been in a business meeting? Do you know it? There's things that are said that you're like, did that come from Satan? There's things said by good, God-loving Christians in churches that you'd say, wow. One Sunday they're speaking the words of God and the next they're doing the works of Satan himself. There's a, there's a thin line there. So Satan uses Peter to do what? Look what he says. Set a trap. 
I got to hurry. It says, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me. You're a trap. That's what the word offense means. You hear that all the time. People say, I'm offended. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about a stumbling block. Something that Satan is using Peter to put a trap, a stumbling block in his way so that Jesus, get this, will go a different direction. He's putting up a roadblock, trying to stop him from going to the cross. Go this way, go that way, but don't you dare go to the cross. Peter's putting up a a roadblock trying to veer him off course, trying to to change the plan, trying to keep Jesus from the cross, trying to tell him, don't suffer, don't die, be a king without a cross. And again, Satan is doing everything in his power to avoid the cross, to stop it. Satan again knows that the cross crushes his head. That the cross destroys the power of death. That the cross atones for man's sin. So Satan will do everything he can to get Jesus to avoid the cross. But a crossless Christ is no Christ at all. There's no salvation for anyone if Jesus doesn't go to the cross. Jesus knows he must go to the cross. So Jesus, get this. Rejects that temptation. And I love how he does it. This is not, it was a real temptation. Jesus was tempted in in every way, like as unto man, but without sin. He felt this temptation. Jesus knew the feeling. Get this. Grab this. He knew the temptation in Matthew 4. In the wilderness, when Satan threw those things in front of him and said, take power without dying. Be a king without a cross. Jump off this temple and everybody will worship you. And he threw these things in front of him. And Jesus would would feel that temptation deep down in his humanity. He would know, I can do that and miss out on the suffering. Miss out on, on mankind's sin being laid on my shoulder. I can miss out on separation from my Father that I've never known before. And all i got to do is that. He felt it. And then here, when Peter's trying to show him another way, Jesus felt it. And then when he goes to the garden, I think he felt it more than any other time. When he's sweating great drops of blood. And he says, is this really your plan? If there's another way, if there's another plan in his humanity, he says, but not my plan, but your plan be done. And he gets up in the garden and he goes to the cross because nothing can stop Jesus from going to the cross. He must go. Satan can't stop him. So here, Jesus deals with temptation the same way we must deal with temptation, not by playing around with it. Let me think about it. Immediately on the spot, get behind me, Satan. We might ought to start saying that more. And when temptation comes crawling up and somebody walks up to you and says, juicy gossip, I dare you to look at him and say, get behind me, Satan. How dare you? How dare you say, get out of here, get. <laughs> Go for it, I'm serious. Do it. They'll never try to offer you gossip ever again. <laughs> they might not be your friend anymore either. They're going to go gossip about you. Shh, they call me Satan. <laughs> but you would have overcome temptation. Flipping through the channels, you've got something you might want to stop on. Hmm, let's watch that. Get behind me, Satan. Get on out of here. Get. Change that channel. Surfing through the internet. Here's your website. Here's something to look at. Get behind me. Get on out of here. I can't see that. There's temptation, traps, stumbling blocks that are laid in front of Christians all the time. And instead of toying with them and playing with them, we need to follow the example of Jesus and say, get out of here. I don't want none of that. That's how Jesus dealt with it. And then he looks at Peter and says, you need to change your thinking, buddy. You're you're, you're thinking the way of man and not of God. Your thinking isn't right. Your viewpoint is off. You're wrong. You're not seeing things the way. You know, we already talked about this. You're not seeing things the way God sees them. You're seeing things the way you want to see them. You've got a plan. (laughs) 
and God has a plan. And you're trying to follow your ways instead of God's ways. That's the lesson. God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And God's plans are not our plans. And we need to constantly, constantly, constantly be thinking of the ways of God and not of the ways of man. We need to savor. He says the word savor there. You ever savored something? Eat something good and you say, hmm, just let that linger a little while. Peter was savoring the, the things of man, the ways of man, the plans of man, over savoring the will of God and the plan of God. And Jesus said, that's wrong thinking, man. That's satanic thinking is what that is. So we need to constantly, let me go back to that, be bowing our heads and saying, not my will, but thy will be done. I don't want to do things my way. I want to do things God's way. That's where we need to be. No matter how hard it is. God, I'd like for it to go this way. God, this is what I think. This is what I want to be best. This is the way we ought to do things. I get that. But not my will, but your will be done. I want to do your way. That's how I want want to live my life. There's a way that seemeth right unto man, right? But the end thereof is a way of destruction. And you see our country and and, and even churches today that that are constantly going the way of man. I think this is how a marriage ought to be run. This is what a husband ought to do and what what a, a wife ought to do. But God says this is how it's done. I think this is how I ought to raise my kids. This is how God says it ought to be done. This is how I think we ought to do church. (laughs) And you have that a lot in church. This is how we ought to do it. This is what the thermostat ought to be set on. (laughs) I've had it happen. 71, 72. (laughs) My way, my way, my way. But here's how God said the church ought to be run. And let me get to this. You've got people all over the world that's saying, this is my way of salvation. This is how I think we ought to be saved. I Googled it this week. I was find, trying to find a coloring sheet for our kids to match this sermon today. And I typed in God's plan of salvation. Coloring sheet. <laughs> Good Google search. And you should have seen the nonsense I found on there. Nonsense. I would click on one. I'd say, no. No. Be good. Go to church. Get baptized. No. Do this and do that. When God says the plan of salvation is not for us to do. God's plan of salvation is it's already been done. There's so many wrong ways and bad plans that religions are throwing out there and saying this is the way to God. Wrong! You're savoring man's thoughts and not God's thoughts. There's only one way of salvation. There's only one man and there's only one plan. And it's through Jesus and a cross. That's why we preach Christ and we preach Him crucified. It's the only way of salvation. Don't go man's way. Oh, everybody. Some people think that all you got to do is die and you go to heaven. Oh, he was a good man. You know, rest in peace. No. No. Cults and their ways of salvation. No. No. We don't follow man's ways. I had a woman tell me one time, I was sharing the gospel with her, and she said, me and God have our own plan worked out. I wasn't as nice and kind as I am today. That's nonsense. How did, who drew up that agreement? You know who drew it up? She did. I can do whatever I want and still go to heaven. That's the agreement. That's the agreement. 
I can live however I want to live and still go to heaven. That's not God's plan. That's your plan. God has a plan. We savor God's plan of salvation. Because it's the only way of salvation. There's not many ways. There's only one way. Our culture today says that God is at the top of a mountain. You've all heard this. I've shared it. And that all these religions are down at the bottom. And they're all climbing up that mountain towards God. They're all going up to Him. And it's just different ways. The Muslims go up one way. They've got to be 51% good and 49% bad. And they'll get there. The Mormons have their way. The Hindus have their way. The Buddhists have their way. The Jehovah's Witnesses have their way. And Christians, they have their way. We're all just, you know, coexisting together. Trying to make our way up that mountain and get to God. There's not many ways. There's one way. And we're not going to God. He came down to us. He sent His Son who went to Jerusalem, who suffered many things. Who was killed and was risen again on the third day. That's the way of salvation. That's God's plan to save mankind. And there are no other plans. That's God's plan to save man. And aren't you glad that nothing could stop Jesus from accomplishing that plan? (laughs) Peter couldn't stop him. Satan couldn't stop him. Nothing could stop him. He went to Jerusalem. He suffered in many ways. He died in our place. He did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. And I love that at the end of it, don't you love at the end of it that He said it is finished? It's done. Let me me tell one more story and I'll quit. My boys, Isaiah, he's back here. Their room stays a mess. And you'll go, you'll send them in there. Clean your room, boys. All right. And you'll go in there an hour later, or you'll holler at him. Do you clean your room? Yeah. Is it finished? Yeah. Yeah, it's done. We're complete. Sitting there playing their video games. You walk in there, <laughs> you ain't done. This is under the bed, and, and that's over here. And, and uh, how many Snickers did you eat? And, and just, you know, everything, everywhere. It's not done. They got a little bit. It was a little bit here and a little bit there, but they didn't finish it. They, they left a little bit for me and Steph to do. You see where I'm going with this. When Jesus went to the cross and he said, It is finished. Everything that was necessary in order to save us, He did it. It was finished. There's not one single thing left for me to do. It's been done. He accomplished the plan. And I'm going to add one more step to the plan because He did it. He finished it. Job well done. A hundred percent. It's all been done. And now that one step to the plan. Get this. He went to Jerusalem. He suffered. He died. He finished it. He rose again. And now that one step is all that's left. You say, what's that final step of God's plan to save man? What do we do? We believe in that plan. And we believe in that man. And we put our full faith and trust in who He is and what He did. And if you do that, your sins will be forgiven. You'll be saved. You'll be reconciled. You'll be guaranteed a place in heaven. And you can trust in life right now that everything He does in your life, whether you like it or not, is working out for your good. All you have to do is believe in the man and believe in the plan and you can be saved. That is, get this, the Greatest plan that anybody could ever come up with. Because it didn't come from me. It didn't come from you. It came from the infinite genius of Almighty God in heaven. Down to us, here's how you can be saved. There's the answer to the predicament that we started the sermon out with. And I call upon you today, if you are here as an unbeliever in these things, If you don't believe in the man, and if you don't believe in the plan, any other way sends you to hell. And I don't want you to go there. I want your sins to be forgiven. I want you to be reconciled to a holy God. I want you to be saved. The Bible says, I think in Jude, that we ought to be pulling people out of the fire. (laughs) And that's how I see things today. In my eyes, I'm not seeing it as this is just one more sermon and one more passage. No, as I preach God's plan to save man, 
I, I believe there's people in the pews here today, and maybe even people online, who are so close to the precipice of hell. And sermons like this in the Gospel of Matthew are me reaching out my hands trying to pull them away from hell. Don't go. Don't do it. Don't. And even people in here today, maybe one of you is an unbeliever, maybe one of the kids, and I'm just sitting there saying, don't. And you're grabbing at arms, you're grabbing at clothes, you're grabbing at legs, you're grabbing everything that you can get. Don't go there. There's a, there's a way out. There's a plan. And, and there's a man who came to die for you. Don't do it. Don't go there. Don't do it. And you're urging and you're pleading. That's what I'm doing here today. Don't do it. Don't do it. There's a plan. It's easy. A child could do it. Believe in Jesus today and you shall be saved. Do that today. Do that today. Do that today and now. As I pray, I urge you, please, call out to Jesus. Look to the man on the cross and say, I believe my sins are, are deep. My sins are bad. My sins will send me to hell. But I believe in Jesus who is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and who did what I could not do and paid the price that I could not pay. And my full faith is in Him. I guarantee you salvation today in Jesus. Do that today. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the beautiful plan of salvation. The wonderful plan, the perfect plan, the only plan. And I pray that today, by the power of your spirit and the working of your word that you would lead people to Christ and to his cross today. Please, even as I'm praying this, God, by your spirit, work in people's minds. Convince them of the truth and work in people's hearts, changing it so that they may turn and open their eyes and see the, the beauty of of the risen Savior. And we ask and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.